All right, hello, hello. This is What's New in Adaptive Physical Education with your host, Scott McNamara. And we're bringing you the second episode of uh, Nonprofits in the Field of Adaptive Physical Activity and Physical Education. And we'll get to that in one minute. And we got our new portion, What's New in History and Adaptive Physical Activity and Education. And like I said last week, we're going to actually have Jeff from this podcast start joining us, uh, but that's not going to happen until next time. And he's working on some different things, and we're going to add a portion to the show, so I'm really excited about bringing that out. But before that, I wanted to keep going with last week, so I got some positive responses about us doing one on ASL and where are the origins from that. So I thought we'd make this one a little bit more uh, sport-friendly or activity-friendly, and so I was going to talk a little bit about Special Olympics this time, and I think everyone has heard of Special Olympics, and Everyone, I think, supports it, and they know it's a really big organization. But I kind of want to talk about where did that organization come from. We all know that Special Olympics is huge. It's the world's largest sports organization for children and adults with intellectual disabilities. provides a year-round training and competitions to more than 4.5 million athletes. That's right, 4.5 million athletes. And it's all throughout the world. Special Olympics... Competitions are held every single day around the world. They include local, national, regional competitions. And there's somewhere around 94,000 events a year. So how did this happen? How did we develop this organization? Um, And I'm going to introduce with that the person that a lot of people attribute the formation of Special Olympics from. And that would be Eunice Kennedy Shriver. And she saw this need for physical activity and equality for people with intellectual disabilities. Now, Eunice Shriver, or Kennedy, was a sister to John F. Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy, our former president and and, uh, presidential candidate, Bobby Kennedy. Now, she also had some other siblings. One of her siblings was Rose Marie Kennedy. And that was her older sister. And she was, stories say that she was a very young woman, beautiful and grace, but she had some behavioral issues. And they're not really all that well defined. Um, but we're looking at like the 20s and 30s, and she had these behavioral issues. And she fell behind her success-oriented family and academic and sporting events and had some type of mental disability that was kept secret. Um, but we don't not quite sure what was going on with that. But her father arranged one of the first prefrontal lobe lobotomies for her at the age of 23. But it failed and it left her permanently incapacitated. She spent the rest of her life at an institution in Wisconsin and reports say she had minimal contact from her family. Now, her condition of her sister is believed to have inspired uh, Eunice Shriver to launch Special Olympics. And Eunice did a lot of things in intellectual disabilities and helping them with mental health. And she helped establish a whole bunch of programs for universities, government initiatives, healthcare facilities, and support services networks from for throughout the country. 
1961, she championed the creation of the President's Panel of Mental Retardation, which was significant in the movement for community integration in the U.S. and throughout the world for people with disabilities. She was also one of the founders for National Institutes of Child Health and Human Development. And in a 1962, in June of 1962, Eunice Kennedy Shriver started a day camp called Camp Shriver for children with intellectual disabilities, Maryland, which I've actually been to a camp abilities, Maryland, which was on the Potomac River. So Potomac, Maryland is where this started. She started this camp because she was concerned about children with intellectual disabilities, having nowhere to go, nowhere to play, and she knew that there was a benefit from sports activities because her family was very engaged in sport and recreational activity. So using Camp Shriver, she was also the president of the panel of mental retardation at the time, and she promoted that concept of involvement in physical activity and other opportunities for people with intellectual disabilities or cognitive impairments. So Camp Shriver became an annual event, and the Kennedy Foundation uh, gave grants to universities and other areas to hold similar camps. Meanwhile, this was in 1962. In 1958, a Dr. James Oliver of England was conducting research that included studies that showed that physical exercise and activities for children with intellectual disabilities had positive effects that carried over in the classroom. And Dr. Shriver then, or sorry, Dr. Oliver would later in 1964 serve as a consultant to Camp Shriver and kind of gave a lot of research backing to them as well. Now, the first International Special Olympics Summer Games was held in 1968 at Soldier Field in Chicago. And when I say international, we have about 1,500 people and mostly from the U.S. and Canada that took place, took part in one day event and in the Chicago Park. And there is a woman, Ann Burke, a physical education teacher from Chicago, and a recipient of one of the grants, and she came up with the idea for a one-time Olympic-style athletic competition for people with special needs. In 1971, the U.S. Olympic Committee gave the Special Olympics official approval to use the term Olympics. And in 1988, the Special Olympics was officially recognized as uh, Olympic Olympics by the International Olympic Committee. I just was really fascinated to learn more about the Special Olympics history and to know the people that pushed it and to hear the initiatives that were going on and the research as well. It's very interesting to me. Now, we're going to go back now to nonprofits, which Special Olympics is obviously a nonprofit as well. And we're going to talk a little bit with uh, Paul. Turner and Jeffrey Lee again, because Beth had to leave from the last interview. She had some doctoral things to take care of, as the, us doctoral students have to do. And we kind of just talked about what is nonprofit work, what are some of the obstacles, and what do we want to see in the future. So I hope you really enjoy this second portion of the nonprofits and adaptive physical education and activity podcast. In our small fields of disability, sport, adapted sport, fitness for people with disabilities, do you collaborate with other nonprofits in in any field or in your own field right now? Well, we, we definitely collaborate with other nonprofits um, because, you know, these other nonprofits, Scott, they have their, their niche, if you will, 
you know, and um, they're trying to help the same demographic in different ways, uh, whether it's life lessons or life skills or reading or, you know, verbalizing um, or, or being able to use their arms, you know, or, I mean, you know, Jeff can, can, can add on, but, uh, you know, we're helping people. We're helping the same, you know, broad demographic, if you will. Um, but we have our niches, and uh, I say let's collaborate with what we know. Um, you know, let's use our marketing intelligence. Let, let, let's use our research, whatever we can do to help each other. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm not being idealistic. I think if, if we, you know, I know everybody's out for a little, uh, their slice of the pie to, because, you know, you have to sustain. You have to have a model that is sustainable. But at the same time, I think we can all survive in this world because it's all needed. It's all needed. So we work with a number of different organizations. And they're not all nonprofit, but I, I would have to say, Jeff, uh, I don't know what it's like in San Diego, but the majority of organizations we were um, collaborating with, you know, Special Olympics is one of them, Down Syndrome Guild, they're, they're nonprofits. They're 501c3, so. Yeah, I mean, and the same is, is true for us. Like I said, we work with the city a lot, um, and I suppose arguably most cities are probably nonprofit at the end of the day. But but outside of that, uh, you know, as I said, we work uh, challenge athletes, of course, funds, um, provides equipment, travel, uh, money, uh, et cetera, for a number of our athletes. And um, so we partner with them in that way. One of the other things that's become advantageous to us is, is we can provide a service to other organizations that don't have that capability. So we've partnered with, for instance, the Boys and Girls Club, where they would like to provide some adapted sports, but that's not in their wheelhouse. However, they have facilities. So we partner with them. We provide the program. They provide the facilities. Um, well, something new that we're trying in San Diego um, that the uh, uh, sort of the brainchild of the director of our wheelchair sports camp is bringing together a council of all the different adapted sports groups in San Diego um, to make sure that we're working together on calendaring and um, uh, and you know ultimately you know we don't know how what it's going to play into. Initially, it's all about just talking and meeting periodically, making sure we're uh, not stepping on each other's fundraising activities as far as dates are concerned. But it'll be interesting to see how that grows and where that develops um, as far as marketing and, and those sorts of things. And then finally, uh, as I said, our wheelchair sports camp has a far larger number of sports uh, in it than our organization provides on a year-round basis. And those sports, many of them are being provided at our sports camp by those other organizations. So we'll have Wheelchair Tennis San Diego, for instance, will come out and do the wheelchair um, work with our with our athletes during the sports camp, and we have uh, the wheelchair motocross folks that come out and and do that, and um, and so that's a that's a great way to get people because you know every kid's different, every adult's different, everybody's got a different uh, sport or um, activity that they're interested in. So we'll get people coming through that stick with the, an ASRA program and play basketball, but others that'll go off and play tennis or go. Um, do uh, the uh, the skateboarding, motocross type uh, type activity. So that's that's been a really great way to collaborate. Um, so volunteers, myself running a camp for the blind. I know that getting volunteers sometimes is hard. At least consistent volunteers. So what strategies do you use to get these volunteers? Well, with us, you guys, it's um, it, the schools are you know a bastion of, of, of volunteers because 
like the high schools, for example, they have community hours that they have to obtain. So these, uh, these young teenagers are looking for opportunities. And, uh, so again, when we interface with these different schools, they have different programs like buddy to buddy, where a neurotypical child will deal with a child with a special need and they're, you know, they'll be partners in, in different programs, whether that's sports or fitness or school or what have you. Um, so, you know, through the schools, we kind of have a, a, a built-in group of, um, of volunteers. And then, you know, really, you know, kind of goes back to what Beth was saying, how you get that visibility out there. And, and the more that people know that you're there, you know, if you go to our website and you want more information, one of the questions we ask is, you know, are you willing to volunteer? We just and, uh, um, you know, so we're keeping a database of all those all those hand raisers that said, yeah, they'd, they'd love to help out. And um, so I don't know. Jeff is more established. They've been around the block longer. So um, I'm interested to hear what what how is the volunteer pool out in San Diego. But so far we have more volunteers than we have programs. So hopefully that that equation kind of reverses itself in, in the not too distant future where. You know, we're going to need even more volunteers, but that's our pool right now. Yeah, and that's um, yeah, we that's a nice problem to have to have more volunteers than you have programs. But um, we uh, yeah, we do we do uh, you know from the real just uh, detailed things we uh, we post on Volunteer Match. We of course have our website, social media outlets to to let people know we're looking for volunteers. Um, one thing that we've learned. Once you're working along with volunteers, we actually have now a dedicated volunteer coordinator to sort of be the single point of contact for anybody who's interested in volunteering and make sure that they get training, make sure that, that they're put to work somewhere, you know, what, the, uh, what are the opportunities from the, the volunteer and, um, and get that sort of all organized. As, as far as drawing them in, as I said, besides the social media, um, we get them through a lot of our events. We do, uh, we do, do some fundraising. Uh, um, a stroll and roll type, um, a run and roll uh, type basketball tournament, and so we get a lot of able-bodied people. We actually put them in wheelchairs and, and have them play basketball uh, in the wheelchair, and so they get exposed to it. You know, so we get exposure that way. Um, we do leverage the local schools with uh, special um, people who are studying therapeutic recreation or studying physical therapy. They're they're a good pool of uh, volunteers and. Um, and also just service organizations. You know, we partner with um, uh, Miss Mission Beach uh, down here in San Diego and um, Kiwanis and, and other organizations, and they provide us with volunteers of all sorts, um, both putting on, you know, providing meals and, and, and helping out with events, et cetera. Very cool. Now, I'm just going to open this up to conversation now just because I'm, you know, so just an open dialogue because, you know, as we're talking, I'm just kind of getting more interested in – Jeff, you know, you said that you're you're from San Diego, and it sounds to me, I'm from Detroit, and Todd and Paul are from Detroit. It sounds like there is a, it's almost like a hotbed where you're at for adapted sports and recreation. And I say that, and I'm in North Dallas now, and this area right here, it's uh, crazy how many more adapted sport and fitness facilities there are available for people with disabilities compared to when I was in Michigan. So Jeff, is, is, is that kind of the case from when you've traveled around? Um, well, it's a, I probably so. I, I think, you know, in the Southwest, um, we're just, 
you have you have more sunlight during the year. So you can you can play sports year round. You know, Southern California in particular is renowned for that, regardless of whether it's a, a disabled sport or an able-bodied sport. Um, you know, so uh, you go you go out on any given go out to the coast highway uh, where I live up in North County um, on any day, but especially on a Saturday morning, and everybody's out running and riding bikes, and you'll see the hand cyclists out there. Um, we're, it, it's a it's a sports culture, um, and so yeah, there probably are more. I said we have Challenge Athletes Foundation out here. Um, we have an Olympic training center here in San Diego that have uh, several um, of our Paralympians, including you know gold medalist, uh, wheelchair tennis player, and uh, wheelchair track and field, um, and uh, which I, I we haven't discussed. That it's a new program we're going to be we're going to be trying out as as the wheelchair track and field world, but um, yeah, we've it's. I think a lot of it, again, it's just the culture of being in an area where there's a lot of sports. Again, you go into Phoenix, they have a huge adapted sports um, program, but again, you're in an area where it's year-round sunshine. So, and, and Paul, would you kind of agree with my assessment of the Detroit area not having very limited sports and, and activities available for people with disabilities? Oh, I, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the Jeff's right. It's it's a subculture out there. Um, you know, if you go out to San Diego, and I've had my family out there. I mean, everybody's outside and everybody's running. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you just uh, um, here in Detroit. You know, it's uh, today it's snowing and and um, you know everybody's hibernating. And so you can imagine if uh, you're a family with a special needs loved one. Um, let's say you get them to school. You know, and then you get them back home, and uh, then you got to bundle them up, put them in the car, get them to our facility. You know, it's it's challenging. Uh, you know, it's it makes it that much more um, tenuous for these families. You know, so it, it, it's different. The weather does play a part. I mean, listen for for most neurotypical folks. You know, when you don't have sunlight, you, you know, you get depressed. You know, you're. You're not clinically depressed, but, you, you know, it's depressing. When the sun comes out and it's cold, if the sun's out, you feel so much better, you know. Um, so, yeah, there's challenges here. It's it's not the same culture. It's it's tough. It's We've had a tough time even offering families to say, listen, just, just bring your loved one. You don't have – there's no obligation. But um, I think it will be hopefully easier once, once we have the thaw of spring and that kind of thing where – it just it energizes people, whereas in San Diego they're you know they're all energized all the time. It seems like so um, you're 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 spot on, Scott. You know, that, I mean, and that's just a, a assessment uh, you know that I'm just making quickly because um, I've been surprised here. And what I've kind of thought the reasoning is is in North Dallas we have Texas Women's University, which is the best uh, college in adapted sports and adapted physical education. So my thought was that the university being in this area was why uh, there was a culture, uh, you know, such as as Jeff was explaining. Uh, it sounds like what's in San Diego as well, but I, I have to believe that a area that is not as involved in uh, recreation and activities for people with disabilities can be eventually. And uh, you know, just a philosophical uh, question of. Uh, what do you think that we could do uh, for, you know, uh, Paul and Todd to try to, you know, get that that culture 
in that area? What, I mean, what, what do you what do you guys think? Well, this is the start. I mean, you know, it's uh, there's nothing that's year round in Michigan, and uh, and you know what? I I challenge people. You tell me what what year round fitness facilities are out there in the in the entire state of Michigan. So that's number one. We we've, we've accomplished something that people are like, you know, they're amazed. Now, granted, we haven't done anything. We're not patting ourselves on the back, but we have a facility. We have a location. Um, and I think, you know, again, this goes back to what Beth said earlier in the conversation about, you know, a, 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 you know, the, the results from what we do, because now we have the, the space, now that we get folks involved, and little by little, um, those success stories, uh, the word of mouth that, that, that um, manifests from that, um, it's going to change the culture. Whether you call it forcing the issue, I, I, I don't know. But, um, you know, we're, we're making a concerted effort to change the culture here in Michigan. So can it be done? If, if we said no, it can't be done, then we're wasting our time. Um, we know it can be done because we know it's needed. So um, it's just a matter of time. So I, I think, you know, to answer your question, Scott, uh, we're on the right path to changing those perceptions, attitudes, culture, whatever you want to call it. But uh, um, it starts with what we're doing right now. Yeah, and I, I think that I, I think he's right. I think the the and I think the biggest challenge, no matter where you're at. So even let's say in San Diego, I, and I don't know what the numbers are, but I would I'd be willing to bet that you know seventy percent of everybody in San Diego participates in some sort of outdoor activity, um, or it feels like that some days. But even, you know, my relatives back in Michigan that, that play hockey in the winter and volleyball in the summer and, and, and do all sorts of different things, you still have, I still would imagine, because it's the case out here, that people with disabilities don't participate at nearly that, that, that level. And the story feels like it's always the same, that people had no idea that, um, you know, you can, you, can, you can participate if you have X, Y, and Z wrong with you. Um, recently I saw, uh, during the, the Pan American games, uh, or no, the Pan European games, I guess, but there was a basketball player, wheelchair basketball player from Poland, I believe, who's only got one arm. And so you'd automatically discount that. Well, he can't play wheelchair basketball. He does. He plays at an Olympic level because he figures out how to push his wheelchair with one arm. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, we're self-limiting, um, society where we, we want to say automatically that you can't do something. Uh, and it's really getting people introduced to the notion of exactly what can be done. Wow. That was powerful, powerful, really powerful uh, to think about because yeah, I, th- I think it's, you know, just a cultural change. And, and where you're at, Jeff, it sounds like, uh, you know, it sounds to me like a pretty ideal situation uh, in, in, you know, the adapted sports. And where do you see your future going? Um, wh- what would be your next goals in your nonprofit? Um, yeah, we... Uh... We hit a little bit of a of a snag a couple of years ago, um, you know, around around keeping the money going and whatnot. And so we're sort of in a in a rebirth phase. We're, we've added a bunch of additional programs, um, and things are growing and 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 looking really bright now. Uh, there's so much more to explore with available programs. I think I think in some ways. Uh, and it's a little early to say we're going to – one of our goals is to keep expanding and adding new um, capabilities because one, one message I've heard from um, speaking with some folks at other organizations like out in the Coachella Valley, uh, out in the Palm Springs, Palm Desert area this last weekend, 
uh, and speaking with some other folks uh, from Arizona, is there's so much competition. There's so many different sports available, so you need to be able to provide people with, with options. And, and what a kind of a cool situation, because it, it used to be if you were paralyzed, for instance, and uh, you're back in the 60s or 70s, back in the 70s, um, I'll tell this story briefly. In the 70s, there was a gentleman um, by the name of Brad Parks who uh, became paralyzed, and he was told, well, the only thing you can do now is you can play basketball. And he was a, he was a skier. He did other things, but basketball didn't interest him. And he just kind of sat there and said, well, what am I supposed to do if the only thing I can do is basketball? So he decided that he really loved tennis, and he created wheelchair tennis. So I, I think for us it's going to be expanding more sports programs, more uh, things that people can do so they can find that sport that appeals to them. And then, and then, and then everybody gets more involved at that point. And, uh, you know, Beth was talking about it a little bit earlier about the um, WCMX, I believe. So it's like a extreme sports with, uh, you know, chair users. That is, yeah. I, I don't know if you've seen it before, but it is one of the coolest things I've ever seen um, in person. And it's people in wheelchairs going up and down uh, skate ramps and, and doing flips. And, I mean, it's, I mean, that's something brand new, uh, I believe. And I, I just heard about it about a year ago. Yeah, yeah. We um, we had a demo at our wheelchair sports camp, but I know one of our uh, one of the uh, um, young men that used to play with my son on our basketball team. That's become his new passion is is doing exactly that, and that's great to see because he is that's he's all about that, and it's it's great when you find somebody who uh, a child or an adult finds that sport that uh, you know brightens their eyes and gives them energy and and enthusiasm, and so. You know, you don't want to say, "Oh, no, 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 I'm sorry, we don't. That's not available to you. You have to do only this one other sport, right?" It's great to be able to say, "Well, why don't you try this and try this and try this, and then when you find the thing that you really love." Guys, I just want to say thank you so much for being on the show. Um, I really, really appreciated it, and oh, uh, thank you so much for the invigorating, uh, you know, discussion. And uh, yeah, so thank you. Yeah, thank. Yeah. Well, thank you, Scott. Thank you, Scott. This has been great. Yeah.